Welcome to the Nigel Lee Archive, brought to you by Living Leadership, where every fortnight we share with you a sermon from the late Nigel Lee to encourage you in your walk with the Lord. Here's today's message. I'm going to read from Luke's Gospel, chapter 7. <clears throat> Luke, chapter 7, and we're going to begin reading at verse 36 and run into just into chapter 8. Now, one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him. So he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. When a woman who had lived a sinful life in that town learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster jar of perfume. And as she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two men owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him five hundred denarii and the other fifty. Neither of them had the money to pay him back. So he cancelled the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt cancelled. He was bright, Simon. <clears throat> you have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned towards the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You didn't give me any water for my feet. But she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You didn't give me a kiss. But this woman, from the time I entered, has not stopped kissing my feet. You didn't put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, for she loved much, but he who has been forgiven little, loves little. Then Jesus said to her, Your sins have been forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, Who is this? who even forgives sins. Jesus said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Let's pray. God, our Father, help us to understand your word as we just ponder it now for a wee while together. We know that it's touching on things that are real for every single one of us here this morning, for our families, in our circumstances in life in which we find ourselves. Help us to take from your word, your eternal truth, and to live it and obey it this day. For your name's sake, amen. Do you know the um, TV program Confessions with Simon Mayo? Does that make sense to some of you? The odd teleaddict nodding and the rest of you too embarrassed to even admit. Well, what happens is that researchers, television researchers, they um, secretly investigate something in somebody's past, uh, and then when they have dug out some uh, 
truth about an event that that person has kept concealed, uh, then on the screen, uh, with the person sitting there in the audience, they expose the whole story, usually to hooks of laughter and uh, a lot of embarrassment. And part of the fun, I think, of the program is that everybody knows that you're not going to be uncovering high crimes and misdemeanors. Well, you're not going to be exposing somebody as, as a mass murderer or, or a serial rapist or something on the program. The, the kind of things that get brought out into the open uh, carry the risk that you would be embarrassed, but not that your life would be really destroyed. I think the truth is that many people, many people carry around uh, with them the memories of very serious things that they have in fact done. And they hardly know how to, to deal with whatever it is that's lurking there in their heart. It's like a weight that they can't throw off or something that they just, whenever they wake up in the morning, they just have to pick it up and carry it for the rest of the day. I may be talking this morning to some who have been sexually unfaithful to their partner, and nobody knows. Or events took a turn in your life which has actually been horrible, and you blame yourself. You feel guilty for the things that happen. I may be talking to people who are, in some way or other, living a lie. And people don't, don't know. But it's a weight that, that you carry. It's a, it's a heavy burden. And there may well be a real fear that other people will find out. King David in the 32nd Psalm talks exactly about that kind of experience. And he describes the kind of symptoms that he goes through. The loss of energy. The feeling of, of physical weakness. The, the restlessness at night. The feeling that life is meant to be more than this in some way, but somehow they're locked up with this guilt thing. In the course of my work, I meet so many people who their basic view of themselves is that if other people really knew what I was like inside, they wouldn't like me. And of course, God does know what we're like inside. So there's my hope of a a deepening and satisfying relationship with him, gone. So if you're living with a guilty secret, I am talking to you. The Bible is, is talking to you this morning. As Kim has said in the um, opening part of the service, uh, we're starting a new series, just four weeks, on the power of Jesus over, over death, when it strikes us, over nature, uh, over disease, over things like evil, or demonic spirits, and today we're looking at the power of Jesus over guilt. The situation is that a Pharisee has invited Jesus, probably after some synagogue service, home to have a meal with him, basically because this Pharisee wants to check him out. Jesus' moral teaching is very impressive, but the moral company that Jesus keeps is appalling. He, he mixes with people who probably have loads of things to be guilty about. How do you put those two things together? And so Jesus says, well, after synagogue service, we'll have him on for a meal, and we'll just uh, ask him a few questions and see what happens. And as they um, not sit down, they used to lie down at, at uh, meals. No chance of getting legless. I mean, they were already sort of lying down. 
The door opens and a woman glides into the room. She is apparently well known in the town for a whole history of, of unfaithfulness, for sleeping around. She's known to be immoral. Some of the versions that we have of the Bible actually come out and call her a prostitute. And she begins to pay Christ very close attention. She comes right up behind him, and just being so close, and seeing him there uh, within touching distance, uh, she bubbles up and she starts to cry. And then she puts her head right down onto his feet, and her tears are flowing, and then they're making her his feet wet, and then she gets embarrassed by that, and she takes her hair and she starts to try and clean off the tears, and then she gets out a little jar of expensive, beautiful perfume that she has brought with her, and she takes the stopper out and she pours some of that on his feet and the, the fragrance begins to fill the house. She's quite unrestrained. She's not British. She, she's, she, she, there's an outgoing. If she feels something, she expresses it. Outgoing and expressive in her love and affection for Jesus, and he makes no attempt to stop her. Doesn't say get away from me. Stop embarrassing me. It is as if he already knows her and has accepted her. Simon sitting there at the other end of the table says, right, that's all the evidence I need. Thank you. If this man were a prophet, he would know what sort of a woman it is that is actually touching him. She's as guilty of promiscuity as anybody in this town. Look at him. And Christ then tells this story, which we've read, of the moneylender and the two very different debtors. And it leads us at once to see two things very clearly. Something about Simon and something about the woman. The woman first. Undoubtedly, she has been immoral. That's never in doubt. But it's also very plain from the story that she has already met Christ. Off stage, as it were. Somewhere in the cracks between the chapters. And she has already discovered him to be her saviour. The friend of people just like her. She's been forgiven. She's had her heart cleansed. She's been reassured of God's acceptance of her. That's why she felt so grateful. That's why she began to bubble up. That's why she wanted to get so close to Christ, because he had already become her saviour, cleansed her heart, forgiven her out from inside. So in verse 48 you can see that Jesus says, your sins literally are already forgiven. They have been. You see, a superficial reading of these paragraphs might lead you to think, or to suppose, that he forgave her because of these expressions of love, because of the, the perfume and the tears and so on. But that would be to make nonsense of the story he's just told. He just told the story of, uh, of the two debtors and it would have no meaning. They loved in different ways because of the different debts that had already just been cancelled. Don't get the thing the wrong way around. Anyway, psychologically, do you love somebody automatically that you have offended, hurt, abused? No, you don't. You love them when they forgive you and you don't deserve it. They cancel the, the, the emotional or the moral debts that you owe them. They treat you better than you deserve. That's when you begin to find that love flows. So Jesus, in verse 48, is saying, Your sins have already been forgiven. Remember, 
Remember when we met last week? And Simon is sitting there, cold, critical, distant, in his heart from Christ. No visible love for the Lord at all. Which, of course, is, is why the story comes. If you owe somebody five pounds and they can't fill it, it's no big deal, is it? Oh, you're grateful, but you've forgotten it very soon. If you owe somebody five thousand pounds and they cancel that, wow, I mean, that, you don't forget that in a hurry. And Jesus, pointing at the woman, then turns to Simon and says, Look, Simon, we're talking evidence here. Where is the evidence of any forgiveness? There's no evidence, Simon, that you have done what this woman has clearly done, which is to come and ask for and receive the transforming forgiveness of God. I walked to get to your house. There wasn't any water for my feet when I got here. There was no little traditional dab of olive oil on my forehead. There was no kiss of greeting. There was a come in and sit there if you like. No evidence of anything having actually touched your heart at all. But this woman, look at her. In your own home, there is a woman overflowing with love because she has been forgiven. She has met God in his saving kindness and grace. You may feel, Simon, that your sins are rather tiny. But so is your love. Now, what do we begin to draw out of this this morning? Number one, God's forgiveness for us is absolutely undeserved. It came to the woman just as she was. She had met Christ off stage, as we've said. She knew she was doing wrong. She wanted to start all over. And that's the kind of person that Jesus came for. Two chapters earlier in this gospel, Jesus had said in chapter 5, in verse 32, I haven't come to call the righteous, not the people who fancy themselves rotten, who think that their uh, wrongdoing, such as it is, is barely visible. Now I have come for the people who hurt, the people who carry guilt, the people who have guilty secrets, the people whose lives are a weight and a burden because of unforgiving rottenness inside them. Those are the very ones that I came from heaven for. I go looking for them. I search for them. These are the ones that I'm after. God's forgiveness is undeserved. Secondly, it's free and immediate for all those who ask for it. This woman, whatever she's been doing, has been set free from her guilt plainly. You can see she wants to get close to Christ. Great evidence that something has has gone, a barrier has gone between her and the Lord. She's a new person. Third thing that we draw from this story is that God's forgiveness always leads to visible results. I think this is an almost immutable law in the Bible. It leads to visible results. And just like she broke open her little um, alabaster uh, jar with, with the wonderful perfumed ointment inside, so God's forgiveness seems to break open our stony, hard hearts and outpours a mixture of gratitude to Christ and love and service to other people all wrapped up together. The one is a picture of the other, if you like. 
Chapter 8 After this, Jesus traveled about from one town and village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. The twelve were with him, and also some women, who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases. Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had come out, Joanna, the wife of Cusa, the manager of Herod's household, Susanna, and many others. These women were helping to support them out of their own means. Do begin to see why that has been popped in just then, immediately after this story? There's a number of other women, and they were traveling, apparently, from time to time, with Christ and his twelve disciples, supporting them in their preaching ministry around the towns and, and villages of Palestine. Some of them had been cured of evil uh, spirits in some way. Others had been cured of particular diseases. The thing that marked them all, although they clearly come from different levels of society, they're quite a different bunch of women, but they're friends now. The thing that marks their lives is gratitude to Christ. Joanna, apparently the wife of a man called Chusa, we know nothing much about him except that he was steward in Herod's household. He would have been the manager of, of Herod's uh, household. King Herod uh, used to, well, he's well known for having utterly debauched parties, revelries, Chusa would have had the job of organizing them. And Joanna was his wife. Who knows what she'd been involved in? Been up to her neck in the kind of culture and ethos of that wicked King Herod's household and uh, home. Mary Magdalene, out of whom it simply says, the Lord had cast not one but seven evil demonic spirits. Very different people. And they were so grateful. They were so pleased. They were so deeply, profoundly satisfied with Christ that they used to from time to time go with him and, and, and do the kind of stuff that they could. You see, you do now, don't you? A picture of the visible results of the forgiveness of God, all supporting his work together. And the fourth thing that we learn is that God's free forgiveness makes a person immediately fit company for the Son of God. Nothing else required. No need to hang back. No need to uh, accuse yourself when God doesn't accuse you anymore. Only the Lord Jesus Christ can cleanse out your heart and make it new. And only you can ask him to do it for you. So God's power over guilt, it's unique. I've been reading um, recently um, some of the stories of pioneer Christian work in the islands of Fiji in the 1830s and 40s. I'm particularly interested because I learned that one of my ancestors on my mother's side was one of the very earliest party of Methodist missionaries that went to those islands. They were known as the Cannibal Islands. You imagine a beautiful palm-fringed beaches. And there were these blue waters sparkling in the sunlight, coral lagoons. I mean, it was an absolute tourist paradise. It would, it would make you just drip at the mouth when you read the touristy magazines. And you think, oh, I'd just love to go there. And those islands of this time were inhabited by people of unspeakable violence and ferocity. They routinely killed and ate each other. They would sometimes go to war against other tribes or other islands 
uh, simply in order to have human flesh to eat. If a man died, his widow was almost always strangled to accompany him. Unwanted children, unwanted old people were simply killed. The violence, the, the immorality, the bestiality, we can hardly imagine. Uh, this great, great, whatever, how many great um, uncle of mine was a doctor. And uh, apparently I learned that he was treating one of the great chiefs of these islands, uh, treating him um, for some uh, disease or other, and he was beginning to recover. And so this um, Methodist uh, ancestor of mine, when he saw that the man was at least better enough to attend to one of the other things, he, he began to press upon him the needs of his sick soul, and that he had, he had diseases in more than one part of his body. It wasn't just his body, but it was his soul that needed uh, a bit of help and curing. And this chief got so furious that he, he rose up and seized hold of, of my great-great-whatever, and uh, ripped all the buttons off his uh, Victorian jacket, and apparently you can still see the jacket um, in the museum at Suba, in the capital of Fiji. Because he tried to kill him. And a number of missionaries, early missionaries in the 1830s and 40s, and right up to the 1870s, were indeed killed and eaten. But after about 20 years, there began to come real spiritual breakthrough in those frightening conditions. And people began to be converted to Christ. They began to be convicted of their own sin. And there was confession. And there were tears. And there was repentance. And there was the receiving of the free, undeserved, gracious forgiveness of God. And in a 20-year period, the transformation of those islands was almost total. Cannibalism began to die out and wipe murder and so on began to die out. And then people began to sit at this table. Can you imagine those early missionaries? Get this into your head. Can you imagine the feelings of an early missionary sitting at the Lord's table with somebody who has eaten your colleagues, your friends, those with whom you prayed and wept for their conversion? And now together side by side you eat bread and you drink wine in memory of the fact that you are both of you sinners in your different ways, and the Lord loves you both and has power over the guilt of both. That's what it eventually came to. There is no other answer. It was the gospel of the broken body and the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ that began to transform those... Uh, Melanesian islands and, and, and the Polynesian ones all around. The power of God found at the cross, found in the broken and resurrected Lord Jesus alone over our guilt and our sin and the wretchedness that comes uh, into our lives in which we are defenseless against because we are human beings. Paul was writing to um, the Corinthians uh, in the first century, they were nothing like a savage, although in many ways, many of the things that they were up to were, were equally awful. And in 1 Corinthians 6, Paul writes these words to them. Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers, 
shall inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. I imagine his delight as he as he's penning that and he just stopped to think. Looking around the room, how many guilty secrets there would have been in that early church in Corinth. And yet they found forgiveness. They sat together, one with another. Perhaps they cheated each other over their wives. They'd swindled each other in business. And yet they were converted and God softened their heart and out like perfume began to flow love and service out of gratitude for what God had done. That is what some of you were. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified. You were declared forgiven in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Paul is now using that fact to appeal to the Corinthians to forgive one another, not to take each other to law, to learn to forgive as God has forgiven you, to be at one with one another. That is another visible piece of evidence that you have received the forgiveness of God. You start to give forgiveness as much as it is possible to those who have wronged and harmed you. You reach a state in your mind where you would be willing to sit with a repentant person at this same table, whatever they have done. You know, sometimes driving at night um, with the headlights on, Full, full beam. And in another car, it's coming, and you can see their full beam. Very often, when you dip your beam first, they will dip. It's tuned. If you keep your beam full on, they often will as well. You take the initiative, drop the beam. They will. Forgive. This is a complete picture of God's solution to our guilty secrets. A forgiveness that we receive undeserved, that is lasting and sufficient, and then an example to us, to follow in our relationships one with another. Fanda gave me half an hour. The half an hour is done. Let's pray. Oh God, our Father, as we sit before you, our hearts are touched by your word. And we thank you that you speak to us and you draw back the veil. You, you address us very personally and directly, not because you are an accusing tyrant, but a loving and forgiving God. You sent your Son to search out not the self-righteous, but those hurting and broken and burdened and guilty inside. Father God, we want to reach out in faith and trust back to you in response. To receive your loving forgiveness. Your offer of a new start, new life, new hope by your grace. Oh God, please grant that out of our hearts can flow more of the love of the truly forgiven. As we learn the lessons of this morning's story. In Jesus' name. Amen.
Thank you for joining us today. The Nigel Lee Archive is brought to you as a podcast by Living Leadership. For more information on the Nigel Lee Archive or Living Leadership's other ministries, please visit www.livingleadership.org. God bless.